This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today we have Boyd on from Unit 4, and our topic is the relationship between market dynamics and compensation management. Uh, can't wait to talk to Boyd about this. Uh, Boyd, would you do us a favor and introduce both yourself and Unit 4? Uh, sure, William, and thanks for having me. So uh, I'm Boyd Davis. I uh, head up the global compensation planning software business for Unit 4. Uh, we uh, Unit 4 acquired a, a small U.S. startup called CompRite at the beginning of this year, and uh, I was CEO of CompRite, so now I've joined Unit 4 to continue that path. And Unit 4 is a wonderful company. Uh, Unit 4 is a 40-year-old company that has deep experience in enterprise software uh, and we've undergone a, a massive transition to the cloud with a completely re-architected solution for, for all sorts of back office functions, HR, finance, and so forth. Uh, and uh, the CompRite family fit right in with that, with a, a cloud solution. And I'm, I'm thrilled to represent Unit 4 here, uh, focused on compensation, but uh, Unit 4 has a bunch of stuff that uh, folks should look at if they, if they want to look at leading edge cloud solutions for the enterprise. I love it. What I love about comp professionals, because these are the, your clients, these are the folks that you interact with the most, is they're Excel geeks. Like the most, most sophisticated spreadsheets I've ever seen have always come out of comp. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. And of course, you built software to help them get off of Excel and get into something more sophisticated and better for them, ultimately. But they are really, really, really geeky about and it's important to be geeky about this uh about pay and so i love it so, yeah you know uh, the yeah, comp professionals are, are definitely uh uh often the the odd ones out in hr because they're the mm -hmm. analytical people the numbers people uh, yep. but they still are part of hr and you know it, software will never take the the h out of hr right it's still a human-centric business and i always say that that a lot of these folks use spreadsheets because they have to not because they want to uh, but compensation is, you know, 80% the same for most organizations in terms of how they do it. But that 20% is unique to their culture, their strategy, uh, the talent that they want to acquire. And, and so they're kind of forced to do these really, really customized spreadsheets and then send them out and get inputs. And it, it's a mess. So, so uh, let's, but let's, yeah, they're, they're a wonderful audience because they're the anal the intersection of analytics and people. 100%. And you're right about being the, uh, outsider outlier etc because of all the reasons that you said and it's also the interaction because uh comp kind of is off on an island and they, they they're really you you'd almost like I've, I've said this for years that payroll should really be under finance uh, not hr uh comp closer to finance uh than than hr but probably co-owned uh and because uh, you know uh i if to to get it right, you're ultimately you're going to have to interact with finance. I mean, you, you're going to do everything. On, yeah, and in uh, fact, uh, actually, yeah, in, 
Yeah, in the United States, almost 100% of the compensation professionals we deal with are are in HR. In Europe, it's much more uh, split. A lot of interesting. a lot of the compensation professionals actually sit organizationally in finance, but your point is well taken. There, there's always an intersection. What do you? Right? Let's compensation with... is the unique thing because almost everything. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, there's a little bit of a delay. Sorry about that. No, finish your finish your thought. Point. I was going to say that that everything else in HR, the goal is to be continuous, continuous engagement with managers and employees, continuous performance feedback. Um, you know, getting employee engagement is is a, is a round the year uh, process, right? So people are moving away from uh, most of the annual processes. But the challenge with compensation is you have a limited budget. So mm-hmm. anytime you can't just change them continuously because you have to look at investments, uh, you know, kind of normalized across the whole team, right? Because somebody may deserve a raise, but somebody else may deserve a raise more. So I, I uh, got- and that's, I think, one of the other challenges with is. Uh, apologies again. I, I, uh, I got myself into some hot water. Uh, because indeed, uh, this is uh, at the beginning of COVID. Um, indeed, it reached out to me and asked me to write an article for him. And uh, I said, okay, "Oh yeah, fantastic! Love to happy. We, we love indeed." And uh, and I wrote an article that it's time to get rid of location based pay. <laughs> like this is where pay inequities lie. This is where some of them come up. Is uh, in my opinion or in the, in the article is. You know, Sammy uh, does, uh, Sammy and Tammy do the exact same job. Sammy lives in San Francisco. Tammy lives in Topeka. We pay Sammy the exact same job. We pay Sammy more because Sammy lives in San Francisco, but we're not paying him the exact same. So there's an an inequity uh, that's built in based on, you know, location and cost of living, et cetera. And my argument was you, you chose to live there. So it's the job. We're paying for the outcomes of the job, which should be more equal. So, of course, when I gave them that article, they came back and said, you realize that everything in Indeed is location, <laughs> location-based. location I'm like, yeah, you should probably, well, re-arch- you should probably re-architect that. <laughs> you've highlighted one of the... You've highlighted one of, of the, the, the three big challenges facing compensation professionals right now. Um, and the, the one is the change in, in kind of the work style coming out of COVID, right? Some level of this remote work will certainly be permanent. Um, right. And it was a transition happening. And of course, COVID accelerated it. And most organizations are still grappling with what's the right strategy. Uh, a traditional uh, way of doing compensation is to look at the cost of labor, not cost of living, not cost of of you know local taxes or anything else, it's a cost of labor. What would it take for you to hire the similar talent in a similar place? And that doesn't change. The question right. is, is how do you assess that? And um, you know, in an extreme case, you could look at, at at what we sometimes refer to as the digital nomads, who are not just not working in San Francisco but Topeka, but instead working in Colombia or or Portugal, right? <laughs> and uh, and so that that is one of the challenges is organizations have to figure out what their philosophy is. To what extent are you paying for the output of the role or are you paying for the talent? And uh, and I would say that that is not fully uh, there hasn't been like some consensus. In fact, you see people going from the extremes of saying we're going to have everybody back in the office 
where, you know, kind of a local cost of labor is the right metric. And you have other organizations that are saying, we're going to pay everybody the San Francisco or London rates mm-hmm. and, um, and everything in between. And, and I, I don't profess to have an answer. <laughs> Nor do I. I mean, that was just uh, an opinion. But, but I, I do think that <laughs> it, it's a challenge where compensation professionals have to make sure that they stay nimble. And in fact, those spreadsheets could be a bigger and bigger problem for them, right? Because if you change your policy, you know, it's it's pretty hard to, to change all the spreadsheets. Um, but I, I do think that's one of the three big ones that comp professionals are facing. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to the other two. I, yeah, let's do that. Let's just go. Let's go through the other two right now. Well, the, the second one is is the obvious. Uh, you know, we have global inflationary pressure at an unprecedented level. Um, you know, depending on where you are, uh, certainly here in the U.S., you're looking at eight nine percent inflation, and and you get to a mode where oh my gosh, if inflation's up eight percent, if I get a five percent raise which is actually pretty big by historical averages for kind of an average increase that I'm actually got a pay cut. And, uh, and, and you have that dynamic going along with this uh, intense competition for talent uh, in particularly in certain job codes that are, are hard to fill. Uh, so you have this whole inflationary pressure and talent pressure. At the same time, you have a number of organizations that are, that are you know, freezing hiring and maybe even laying people off and a fear of, of, of a potential, slow down and, and, you know, it'll be a different, I'll probably have a different mindset about the threat of a recession uh, by the time this airs versus when we're we're having this conversation. It's a day-to-day thing. So the economic environment is also as, as dynamic as it's been, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm in my fifties. I'll I'll admit I'm Mm -hmm. kind of an old guy in tech. And, uh, and certainly in my lifetime, we've never had this kind of economic environment. I remember as a kid and a young child in the late seventies, you know, we, I, I was aware vaguely of all the challenges and in, with inflation and, and stagflation and recession going on. And we haven't had anything like that in 30, 35 years. So uh, maybe 40 years. So that that's the other big challenge is how do you, how do you handle uh, maybe a more dynamic and unpredictable economic environment than we've ever seen in most of our adult lifetimes uh, for workers. That's, that's the number two that requires people to be really nimble and adaptable uh, and and not be stuck in 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 plans that were look good 6 months ago but don't look now look good now um and I'll I'll highlight the third one because you may yeah. want to go back yeah, to that one yeah let's go the third one is this trend toward pay transparency mm-hmm. uh you know and this is you know this is a really interesting one that's also very local uh you have markets uh, like in the nordics uh pay is very transparent you can actually look at individual people's you know, income tax returns online. Uh, but in most other places, uh, things like a pay structure, pay ranges uh, have been very, very secretive. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the way we all, all grew up in a, a commercial America for nonprofits or, or, or commercial organizations or, or any others. Um, a lot of times public sector is more, much, has been much more transparent, but all, everywhere else it's been pretty secretive. And now you have a few things going on. You know, we haven't been successful closing the gender wage gap to a large extent. Uh, and people view pay transparency as a way to address that. So you have legislation, uh, most notably in the United States and Colorado, you're now obligated to publish pay ranges with job postings. Uh, New York City had a law that was due to go into effect that's now been delayed till November. And, you know, many, many other states and localities have, have put some form of pay transparency legislation on the books. 
saying that pay ranges are going to be transparent. Either when you look for a job, when you get an offer, when you ask for it, there's varying degrees of these. And, and we also see that younger workers, um, younger millennials, and certainly Gen Z, are much more comfortable talking about pay with one another. And most of the legislation out there says that that's no longer, you can no longer prescribe that. You know, you can no longer punish people for having those conversations. So now we're in a mode where comp professionals have to assume that within very short order, uh, all of their pay ranges are going to be public information and an employee can figure out where they fall within the range. They can figure out what the ranges are for people that they may want to leave an organization and go to. And a lot of organizations are not ready for this. Uh, and it's funny, there's a website out there that's tracking over 200 companies that have posted jobs that can be done remotely, except if you live in Colorado. And they're doing that because if they if they enable a, a Coloradan to take the job, then they have to publish the pay range for it. And they're obviously not ready yet. So they just do remote except for Colorado, which is, you know, probably not a great long-term strategy as you see more of these organ more or uh, legis you know, more localities figure out how to say, hey, we want these things to be transparent. It shouldn't be secret. People should know where where the job range is, you know, and I think it's probably a good thing overall because transparency gives organizations a chance to articulate why they pay people what they pay them and give them a higher sense that it's fair. But when you look at this kind of post-COVID dynamic environment around the work environments, you look at the economic environment with huge inflation, but a potential looming recession. And then you add to this, this mix of, of uh, pay is going to be transparent, whether people want it to be or not then comp professionals have a, have a challenge. And I look at it as, as great for, for our, our people, right? Well, I'm a comp guy. And a lot of times they're the whipping post inside a company, right? The employees don't think they're paid fairly. Managers think they're not being paid fairly, not allowing to be pay their employees fairly. Um, you know, the executives are saying, we put all this money into the comp and you know and now we have a chance to say hey there's a lot of thought that goes into this every comp professional i've ever met is passionate about paying the employees fairly in the market and uh and i think their efforts will become a lot more visible so i view it as a positive but it's certainly a challenge so tell us uh, let's go into ranges and and where i want to go into ranges uh specifically is the active negotiation where we're hiring a, you know, a front-end developer, let's just say, and the the front-end developer's ability to articulate what they deserve, what their expectation is, et cetera, um, versus someone that can't or just doesn't have the ability to negotiate or communicate in that way. Uh, like it seems unfair from the from the jump that we have a range but it's kind of slightly based on another person that has nothing to do with their job. It has, uh, has something to do with their ability to ask and negotiate and communicate and all these other things that aren't related to their job. And so I've, I've always looked at ranges. I've wondered to myself how much of the pay equity issue is related to people's negotiation skills. It's it's a great question, and and I think that there has has been one school of thought that that's a, a driver of of gender pay equity that maybe just on average uh, women are are less uh, aggressive in negotiating than men. I think there's some other research that says that's not the case, and and I I think there's an argument to be made that it, it's a little bit um, uh, 
sexist to even say that women don't have that ability or they don't have that mindset. So I, I, I'm not weighing in that that is or isn't a driver, but certainly people have differences in their willingness, uh, whether they're men or women, uh, to to negotiate. And I think publication of ranges is very positive in that sense. So if, if you pay an average front end, end developer um, at with some experience, say, you know, your, your range as a company is $120,000 to $150,000. Um, and, and somebody may be a front end developer and somewhere making 85,000 or something. And then they could look and say, oh, okay, no, the, uh, the competitive range here is, is 120 to 150. And maybe I don't have great results or I don't have some of the skills or competencies that would get me to the high end of that range, but I should certainly be at the low end of that range. Uh, and organizations aren't gonna be able to say, well, you're making 85 today, so I'll give you 95, isn't that a great deal? Um, so they'll take away some of that mandate for people to, uh, uh, to negotiate in the dark uh, and take away some of the rewards for people that that figure out how to how to work the system. And I, again, I think that's a positive for employees because our goal is not for organizations to um, to kind of get away with with underpaying people that can contribute at that level, but just don't know that they're they're being underpaid. So I, again, I think it's a positive for our workforce, right? If the 100%. jobs worth 120 to 150, then yeah, maybe you say, you know, this is a big bump for you, but you deserve it. And by the way, the person at the organization who's paying that individual way well less than market uh, should think about how to drive, you know, drive that person to a market minimum, at least. It's interesting, Boyd, because uh, where they have a very high risk of from a from a recruiting perspective, historically, when we when we have a 120 to 150 range, um, we're, we're, it's, it's like used cars, right? We're trying to get them as close to 120 as possible because it's a cost savings. It's been perceived and thought of, uh, in recruiting as a cost savings to the organization. And the problem, as you, you know, more than, uh, more than anybody else is that is a cost savings check. Got it. But it also creates an inequity or a potential inequity in the, in the organization of peers, people that are doing the exact same job, same skills, cuts, same schools, all the they're Twinkies. You know, if you get, if you look at it though, if you get everybody within the range, we, we've gone a long way. True. Toward Good right? point. Good um, point. And two is I see it actually more often than not the opposite. The talent acquisition people are typically not incented on the total cost of, of payroll role for the people they bring in. They're incentivized to fill positions, right. fill them with the best talent as quickly as you can. And, and so if anything, I see the traditional struggle is between a talent acquisition person who wants to bring the person in at the high end of the range because it gives them a higher chance of landing the candidate, closing the open requisition and, and meeting their indicators. And which, the which, which plays a, which potentially looks at that and says, well, shoot. Oh, um, which potentially creates a compression issue. As, yes. That was exactly where I'm going. The compensation person <laughs> looks at this and says, well, now this person's going to come in with, you know, maybe similar experience yep. to somebody else who's at the midpoint of the range. And all of a sudden you're going to have what's known as a comp ratio and all the comp professionals out there will know a comp ratio, um, you know, that, that's out of whack. So that tension between talent acquisition and compensation is is more often found on the side of, of saying let's let's you know let's have a total value proposition for this candidate that says yes your base pay may be at the low 
lower end of the range because you're you're coming to the organization new. But we have these talent development opportunities. We have these work life balance things. We have uh, we have you know a certain environment and culture we're trying to create that'll make you your life richer. And that's also a really compelling story, particularly for for uh, less experienced workers or younger workers that that are looking at work in maybe a different way. You know, I'm a solid Gen Xer. Um, and and we were still coming of age in a time when you know it was keep your keep your nose to the grindstone, work hard, and things will work out. Uh, and work was was maybe a bigger part of our uh, our our self worth. And now we have a lot of people who are looking to have a lot more balance, which of course I think is a good thing. As a as now a parent of a, of a millennial and two Gen Zers, you know I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, but I I do think that it it does transparency is overall a good thing, 100%. but it, it's it's hard to get to, particularly when you look at these other factors of how are we going to manage uh, uh, pay for for workers and doing the same job in two different locations from a cost of labor perspective, and particularly when you look at this huge inflationary pressure and and yet everybody getting worried about battening down the hatches for a recession, so. I, you know, I definitely think when, when I talk to customers, I'm often focused on, you know, Hey, how do you get at least the ability to, to adapt quickly uh, to the market? So. Boyd, I could talk to you all day. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for carving out time, both, you know, both your wisdom and your time. It's just, it's just been wonderful. Yeah. I, I, you know, I love having the conversation. I'd love to help customers deal with these three big uh, whopping mm -hmm. issues and uh, and happy to chat with you anytime, William. It's it's a pleasure to, uh, to, to be on your show. Thank you. And thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live Podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at Recruiting.